I'm Nicolas Bornov, this president of Capital Inc. And I would like to welcome you to our ETF industry roundtable. Uh, I would like to, uh, we have a great uh, group of panelists and I would like to thank uh, the New York Stock Exchange and uh, Douglas Jonas, for, who is the head of uh, ETF at uh, the New York Stock Exchange for not only supporting the forum year after year, but also for putting together this tremendous panel. So Douglas, thank you. And thank you to each one of the panelists for joining us. Uh, and I will turn it over to you. Uh, and again, many thanks. I look forward to a great discussion. Well, thank you very much, Nicholas. You know, we appreciate uh, being a part of this, this every single year. You know, we get tremendous value. I know our clients get tremendous value as we cover at the New York Stock Exchange, both the ETF marketplace and closed end funds marketplace. Uh, it's always fun to, to run this panel. We, um, we tried to go in, a, in an interesting direction and make it a little bit unique this year where we're covering just about every segment of the marketplace. And so I'm joined by truly a team of experts. So I have Luke Oliver. Now Luke is the uh, head of index investing for the Americas for DWS. John Zimmerman, of course, COO for Index IQ. Many people know Greg Friedman. Greg is the head of ETF management and strategy for Fidelity. And of course, Jason Ronka, well-known uh, across the industry, is ETF Capital Markets Specialist for BNY Mellon. As I mentioned, backgrounds across each of these gentlemen, uh, both unique, distinct, but also very deep. And so we'll be able to cover quite a few topics. I'm excited. As a reminder, you do have the ability to ask questions live during our session. We are going to try our best to field those questions. So feel free if you want to uh, hear more about a particular point or you have a new new direction you want to take it. I'm going to do my best as moderator to uh, to capture as much audience feedback live, just like we would do if we were uh, in person in New York City. So with that, uh, Greg, I'm going to start with you. The first part of this year by just about every measure has been extremely volatile. Uh, at the exchange, I can tell you we've seen exceptional levels of volume. ETFs in particular have seen dramatic growth in assets under management, but also a lot of volatility. You know, for those of us that have been in the industry for a while, we've always heard, oh, they just haven't had their test. So I'd love to hear your commentary on, was this the big test? Uh, how did ETFs fare? What did you see across all the different, you know, really unique aspects of our, of our marketplace? Well, thank you, Doug, for the question. And, you know, I think the quick answer, we've had several tests. This is not our first test. We've had tests through... Uh, the Malaysia currency crisis. We've had tests through the Japanese earthquake and tsunami. We've had a uh, test through 07, 08 with the financial crisis. This was just another um, benchmark for us to, to see how the funds did in comparison to what our expectations were for our clients. And I think overall, let me start with how the funds performed. Uh, they performed as expected. Um, ETFs provide a method of liquidity and access to an asset class when the asset class itself might be uh, illiquid or difficult to, to access. It offers price discovery. Uh, in a lot of cases, it allows investors uh, to, to really gauge where that particular asset class might be pricing at a particular time if the underlying, once again, is not as liquid or, or trading. Um, so the funds performed well. They performed in line with what we expected. Um, you know, once again, you know, there's been history of the naysayers about ETFs and they'll break during times of crisis. This was a two standard deviation event. This is the ones that we, we talk about where large swaths of the fixed income market just was pricing. You couldn't get access. You couldn't get um, trades off. 
uh, but you could within the ETF. And this is just another example how the ETF provides that liquidity and price discovery in an effective me mechanism for all of our clients. Um, we did the same thing in 07, 08 with the financial crisis. Um, so, yeah, it's tough because people are always still looking for what's that crack and when's the ETF going to show its faults. Um, it doesn't. It, it performs well. And I think the, the dislocation we saw in March and April of this year um, highlights, you know, the benefits of the ETFs and also, you know, people have the benefits of a mutual fund. You know, I think they, they perform differently just because of how they operate, but they offer our clients um, different outcomes based upon, you know, where the risk appetite was and what the liquidity appetite was. So it was very dislocated. We saw a lot of markets within the fixed income space uh, lock up, not have liquidity. We saw great phenomenal volumes on the New York Stock Exchange around the equity side of the ETF market, but overall the, the products worked well. They offered um, different benefits for our clients, and I think the press and I think our clients appreciated how they, how in the end, when they look back, uh, the performance of these products. Yeah, I think it's you made a lot of really interesting points there, Greg. I mean, for those of us who again lived through some of the the larger standard deviation events, as as I like how you put it, uh, particularly with ETFs, this time around felt very different. Uh, even though we had market wide circuit breakers happening, which was the first time ever. Uh, even though we saw exceptional levels of volumes, we didn't see any of the, I'll call them systemic uh, issues that we had seen in the past. And it, and it was reflective of the industry over the last decade coming together and making changes in the infrastructure, right? We didn't see the, the level of halts. We didn't see uh, the, the level of stopped trading, if you will, even though some of the underlying assets, as you mentioned, particularly in fixed income themselves, stopped trading. And uh, our, our, our team put together a great piece, if you're interested, by Mark Hecker to Vice Data Services on some of the dislocation, if you want to read more about what happened in March. But um, as we kind of continue, uh, you, know, let, you know, from your standpoint, um, Luke, you know, at DWS, obviously you cover another uh, set of investors, set of products. What are some of the key takeaways that, you know, that you and your team felt coming out of March? You know, are you looking at things differently, so to speak, as a result of what you saw? Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd also like just to add a little bit to that that liquidity question because it, it's such an important point that ETFs keep being tested. And so one of our observations this time around is they continue to do exactly what, what they were supposed to do. And I think fixed income is such a great example because only about 20% of fixed income trades every day, whereas these ETFs are trading every day. So that price discovery point that Greg made is a really strong one in that even in some cases during this period in, in, in March, where we saw some ETFs trading slightly, slightly away, maybe 2% away from where the underlying bonds were being marked, didn't necessarily mean that there's a 2% premium or discount. Simply, you have a vehicle that is trading and can be executed at those prices right now. And so what that means is that it's the underlying market, which is out of sync or delayed and stale, versus the ETF being the, the, the live action of the price. So, so that's a really key point. This, this isn't a tail wagging the dog. ETFs aren't driving the underlying market. They're giving the cleanest, truest valuation that you can actually trade on those markets. So I think ETFs really showed their, their value again um, during this, this, this pandemic because they were the liquidity vehicle. And we certainly saw, as you said about volumes, people really trading them. And that's, that's what they're there for. Um, as far as you know, other changes that, that we've seen, we've certainly seen um, you know, uh, people, it's been interesting, you know, the, the, the kind of pent up demand, some of the stimulus has, has allowed this V-shaped recovery to, to, to really 
uh, swing back in, but there's still some headwinds there and we should still be a little bit cautious. So we've seen investors really kind of, you've, you've seen huge flows into some of the um, ultra short duration products, which kind of give you an indication of, of where investors are, but at the same time, people don't want to miss out on, on some of the upside. So, so we've really seen people kind of barbelling where, where, where they've been heading with their investments and the conversations we've had have been at those two ends of the spectrum. It's interesting, you know, um, you brought up a few good points there. And one of the, the areas that I was hoping, Jason, given your background, what your team focuses on is um, especially in, in ETF capital markets, ETF trading. Uh, what, what, what did you see, I guess, you know, if, if we instead of looking backwards at March, but then say look forward for an advisor, investor, folks who are really getting into ETFs, your team specializes, you know, entirely on trading. Do you tend to talk through tips or best practices or as a result of March, are you, are you saying something different? You know, how, how are you educating your clientele? Yeah, thanks, Doug. And, and great question. And I'll say really there are three best practices that I generally give to advisors, especially ones that may be newer to ETFs or not as familiar with trading ETFs. The first, and, 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 it's, and it's well known, or at least I hope it's well known at this point, is very rarely use a market order. I always tell advisors either use a limit order when placing a trade or what's known as a not held order. The reason being a market order has no price target. It can lead to high trading costs during volatile markets. Yes, you'll get immediate execution, but you're gonna pay for that immediate liquidity with a really poor price for your clients. With a limit order, you're able to set the maximum price you're willing to pay for shares or even the minimum price you're willing to sell for. You're not guaranteed execution, but at least your client's interests are protected. And like I said, depending on the client and the level of sophistication, I sometimes recommend not held orders. This gives the broker or trading desk discretion over when and how to trade on your behalf. You're in effect outsourcing execution to trading professionals who have better tools to evaluate execution options. Two, and this is a big one, do not trade during the first or last 20 minutes of market hours. The markets can be really volatile during this time and you're likely gonna see less liquidity and wider spreads during these two periods. And last, and this one doesn't get as much airtime, but be aware of what type of ETF you're trading and understand if the underlying market is open or closed at that time. It could be on a holiday or bond markets tend to Dry, liquidity tends to dry up earlier than um, the equity markets. So generally speaking, prices will be better and the market more liquid when ETF market makers have greater visibility into where the underlying market trades, their ability to offload risk in those markets fairly efficiency. Because then, and then this was touched on by Greg and Luke, liquidity in ETF is mostly driven by trading in the underlying portfolio. And it may be reduced when markets are liquid or close. So those are really the three points I give advisors when discussing trading of ETFs and they're of uber importance during times like we saw in March. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, your point about watching the underlying markets, you know, I always think about Columbus Day. We always get a lot of emails at the exchange saying, hey, reminder, uh, equity markets are open, fixed income markets are, tend to be closed. Watch, watch uh, fixed income ETFs. So. Um, we're going to come back a bit later. I want to talk more about what your team does and the role of ETF capital markets because that, that exists at, at just about every ETF issuer and it's so important to uh, some of the services that are out there for advisors that are watching this panel. So 
But staying on that topic that he brought up of volatility, to some extent, John, uh, Index IQ is a bit in the business of volatility. You've got some really unique products that, that um, you know, can, can support investors when they start to be concerned. So I, I always wonder, and I always look to you for a bit of guidance of, you know, given so much uncertainty, given uh, some of the ways we measure that, like the VIX, what are you talking about today to your clients, to advisors? How are you looking at the overall environment? Thanks, Doug, and thanks everyone for having me today. Um, there's obviously no shortage of uncertainty uh, right now. I mean, a, in an environment where a global trade war seems almost quaint compared to a global pandemic and a impending election, it's um, there's a lot to think about. One thing that we're hearing a lot from our clients in addition to volatility is where they can expect returns going forward, given where equity market valuations are, given the, the returns coming from a small subset um, of names within the equity markets. And then also on the fixed income side, given where rates are, there are some, I think, some real fundamental questions around that. Um, we, we strongly recommend staying invested, um, but that is with the caveat of smart asset allocation, right? ETFs are perfect for asset allocation making long-term strategic, but also tactical trades within that. And so that is really core. I think building core ETF portfolios using a, a long-term mass allocation approach is critical. We strongly recommend and advocate for alternatives being part of that asset allocation. I think especially with some of those valuation concerns that we're seeing now, you, you know, the benefits of bringing in some portfolio diversification into that, into that allocation is critical. And I think we'll continue to see that over the cycle, whatever happens with the election, whatever happens with the pandemic, you know, those, that, that broader structure around your portfolio is going to be really important for all investors. And I probably even should have started, you know, uh, every one of the issuers that are on screen with us today, their websites have incredible amounts of information for those that are looking for additional knowledge. Uh, about the market environment and, and, and how to react in your portfolios. I, I do encourage you to check out their, their websites, uh, always up to date with interesting information. So um, along those lines, Greg, uh, I want to come to you and I want to talk a little bit about the world of active management. Uh, as we start to think about 2020, you know, early in the year, I, I happened to be uh, on a, I don't know, a news clip. And I, I happened to say the words of, I think 2020 might be the year of active management. And so it's it's sort of stuck and people gave me a hard time, but, but now I don't feel so bad about the, about the statement. You know, I was looking at cash flows. I think we've about doubled net cash flow in active ETFs this year. Uh, my team kicked off an active ETF newsletter. You guys in particular are sort of leading the space here where you've launched uh, these semi-transparent ETF structures. W what are your general thoughts? I mean, Fidelity well-known for, for active. What are you thinking about when, with respect to the ETF wrapper? How does active fit into the ETF wrapper? What does the landscape look like? Your experience? I mean, take it away. Uh, Greg, we have you. A lot of questions there. So let me see if I can uh, at least catch five or six of the ones you, you threw at me pretty quick. Um, yeah, the active ETF space has been uh, used and has been successfully you know, populated with great fixed income products. Um, if, you, if you take the chapters of ETFs, and you know, I've been fortunate to be involved with ETFs almost since the very beginning, 1996. And the first chapter is really the beta or the index space. Chapter two allowed um, asset managers to, to create self-indexes and think about with the help of the fantastic index providers uh, on the street today, 
uh, smart data, which is really solutions, strategies, or outcomes uh, for our clients. The third chapter, which we're in and, and growing, is the active space. So active fixed income has been around for a decade now, um, providing a lot of great uh, solutions and outcomes for our clients in terms of excess return around fixed income products. But the one slot that's been missing in, the, in our client's toolbox has been the active equity piece of it. And that's because the equity markets are more efficient than fixed income. The equity portfolio managers are a little more concerned about slippage, giving away um, research, uh, trading strategies. Where on the fixed income side, you know, the, that concern is not the same just because of the market structure and how you execute uh, particular bonds. So, you know, we've seen growth in active fixed income over the last couple of years. Last year was a great uh, asset gathering a year for all of the industry around active fixed income. But as you said, and you predicted early in the year, you know, this is the year of the active. Now it's a year of a lot of other things. Um, I didn't hear you talk about the other things we, that we, we, that we uh, have to go through this year, but in terms of active, you're spot on. You know, this is the year that we got approval from the SEC to do what they're calling non-transparent active equity. Uh, at Fidelity, we don't like the term non-transparent. There's nothing good about non. These are just active equity ETFs. They might have a little different structure to them, but they behave, trade, feel, and supply solutions for our clients the same as any other ETF does. So we're calling them not, we're calling them equity, active equity ETFs. So we are fortunate to launch our first three on June 4th. Um, there's been five different processes that have been approved by the SEC, all from very good, very reputable firms, all the technology are gonna work for the client. You know, in the end, the client should be really concerned with how does my ETF perform to that of the benchmark? Am I gaining the excess return? How's my client experience? How's my trading? Am I getting good execution? That should be really what they're focused on three to five years from now. Right now, everyone is really focused on these technologies and bringing this new application to clients. Um, you know, we think our technology is unique. We're committed at Fidelity to being the home of our active ETF trade, not only just for our technology and our own products, but our partnerships we have with other asset managers, our ability to educate, our ability to have platforms and execution. So really, we're really focused on this space, but it's early days. Um, the first products were launched, I believe, in April. Ours were launched in June. There's maybe seven, eight funds out there, but this really is going to change the landscape of ETFs. So let me explain why. Yes, these are new products and I'm a product guy down deep. Um, and these are innovative products. This is something the industry has been working on as a whole since 2008, 2007. Uh, so, and it's a big missing component to someone's building block approach. <coughs> but I think where it's gonna really change, you're gonna see now for the first time, traditional mutual fund asset managers getting into the ETF space. You're gonna see firms that have never done it because there wasn't a way to protect their IP. There wasn't a way to protect their trading strategies. And now they can produce quality products as they do in a mutual fund into an ETF wrapper. And a lot of these firms, including us at Fidelity, we're wrapper agnostic. It could be a mutual fund, it could be an ETF, could be an SMA, could be a model. Our goal is how do we bring the best of our capabilities to our clients? So client firms that have only had mutual fund wrappers to date can now offer ETF wrappers as well and give their clients a choice. Do I want it in a mutual fund form or an ETF form? But how do I satisfy and how do I do the right thing for a client? So that's the big change I see on the, on the horizon. I think the also the bank shot of this is it can change distribution. You know, how you distribute a mutual fund, how you distribute 
product to clients is going to change because once you put it on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or SIBO, they're wrapper agnostic. You don't have to have a platform. You don't have to pay for a platform. These trade on an exchange. They trade well. Their uh, markets are made by very successful and uh, wonderful market makers. So it's really going to change the distribution of ETFs going forward. So this has been a, a big, a big change. You know, New York's been on the forefront of this, as I said before. They're a great partner uh, of ours and others. Um, they've got their own technology, but really it's going to come down to how the funds perform. And this, the first time, allows our clients to fill that missing building block of the active equities of ETFs. Yeah, we're, you know, as you mentioned, we're, we're really excited at the New York Stock Exchange. We've built a tremendous platform to support all these new technologies. At the end of the day, our belief is it'll be one more opportunity for a great active manager to distribute their product and, and do it in a way that tends to be a little bit more tax efficient and a little bit less expensive and can do so with a U.S. product and, and go global with it. So tremendous opportunities. Those that want to learn more, you can come to our website, nyse.com or the home of ETFs.com. Uh, we actually have an active ETF newsletter you can subscribe to. So uh, please, if you have questions, let, let any of us know. We're happy to help you. Um, with that, though, I, I really want to talk about another major, major headline, and that's China and investing in China. Uh, Luke, you and I have known each other for, for many years, and, and this topic is, never ceases to come up. Now more than ever, though, definitely dominating the headlines. So I'm curious to, to hear about what you, what DWS, is thinking about uh, investments in China, you know, what, what, what are you telling your clients right now? Yeah, it's a big topic. I mean, it's a huge topic and there's, there's so many, so many facets to it, but I think the, if there was one takeaway, um, right off the bat, I would say China investments and specifically the A shares that we, that we always talk about. So mainland China, most people, most investors only have access to China via the Hong Kong listings, some of the New York listings. Even in the big emerging market products, the A shares, the mainland Chinese stocks have been very absent and are very, very much underweight. And so we've always been talking about the need for people to include A shares in their, in their allocation, whether it's for EM or broadly or world, China's just too big to, to ignore. So the, the kind of headline that, that I like about this is that the, the Chinese market as a portfolio allocation has done exactly what it's supposed to do. It has been very, has very low correlations, and it actually weathered this storm better than the, uh, the S&P did. And so to create diversification and actually um, has, has performed very well. So, so with that, and that's just, that's the story we told for a long time, that the, the fact that the correlations of the S&P is something like 0.3 and we've got one of the fastest growing economies in the world, it really is a great allocation now. That's not without risk, but that risk has actually equated to diversification and has been additive to, to risk return profile. So, so China still uh, for us is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a fantastic allocation to make. And especially if you're a, a global investor, you have an international sleeve, you have an emerging market sleeve, you're probably still underweight China. But now, as far as our view on China, um, we've upgraded our view on China for 2020 from a 1% growth to 2% to GDP growth. Um, which we see is very positive. However, that's significantly lower than the, the eight or 9% that China has seen pretty consistently for the last 30 years. That said, we're forecasting eight and a half percent next year. And China is one of the only, in fact, the only country that we see returning back to pre-COVID levels by end of year. So, so we're, we're, we're quite uh, constructive on, on China and especially um, the, the Asia market. 
So we saw stimulus in China. I think now we're seeing that uh, China does seems to be saving its powder. So we can feel somewhat confident that should it be needed, there is a lot more gas in the tank. And at the moment, that's 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 not being used. So we think that um, some of the factors that have been supportive to the U.S. market coming back, that gas is still in the tank in, in China. So very optimistic on where China China fits. The fact that people are systematically underweight China and the diversification benefits of China, of China um, not to mention this this overarching growth story, which I think goes beyond trade wars, goes beyond um, current headlines. I. I don't think anyone questions if China will be the largest economy in the world. I think we all know that it's a case of when China will become the largest economy in the world. And there are products available in ETF wrapper that allow you to get access to that market today and not wait until um, inclusion, full inclusion in indices or any other signal. These products are available and they just haven't been utilized to the, to the level that uh, other countries have been accessed. So I think there's a big opportunity on the table there for investors. Great. Thanks for the cleanup. A question that came in. Yes, a lot of firms are working towards the idea of converting current ETFs or excuse me, current current mutual funds into an active ETF wrapper. So if you want to learn more, uh, feel free to reach out to me, my team or um, or, you know, any of the panelists that, that want to discuss the topic further. Um, I, I do want to come back, though, to, to Jason. We, we talked about all the new things in 2020, all these big events that have happened. One of them, obviously, BNY Mellon stepping into the ETF market. Uh, you know, why now and why in this environment? And, and what's it like being a brand new issuer uh, in, in, in what is a now $7 trillion global market? Thanks, Doug. Yeah, the timing in terms of how the markets were acting around the time of our launch certainly made things interesting. But to answer your question, BNY Mellon has always had a large presence in the ETF ecosystem going back to the early days. Our asset servicing unit, the, the unit that strikes the NAV, custodies, ETF assets, trade settlements, and those types of activities has been around since the early days. Persian and the role they play as custodian for advisors who trade ETFs. We have an ETF trading desk that plays a role of authorized participant for numerous US listed ETFs. In our index business, which is fairly a, a fairly large business, sub-advises a number of ETFs today. So offering our own proprietary ETFs as an issuer was just a natural fit for BNY Mellon as an organization given the breadth of our existing services in the space. But in terms of the launch itself and the products themselves, I like to always say we have last mover advantage. And what I mean by that is our suite of eight index ETFs encompass the core building blocks and client portfolios and represents about 60% of all ETF assets by category. So we felt this was a natural place to start having hindsight being 2020, knowing where assets have been going in, in, in terms of the ETF wrapper. Additionally, we are offering the largest US equity in US fixed income categories in the entire ETF marketplace to our clients at a zero fee. There's no gimmicks, there's no limits, limitations to that number, no restrictions on asset size or holding period or the nature of your relationship with BNY Mellon, zero means zero. So assets are growing, we're very pleased with the traction we're seeing in the first several months of trading and I I'm really optimistic of, of, about the future of the business based on the traction that we've seen 
in just about five months of performance history now. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks a lot for sharing. You know, we obviously, my team, we get a lot of questions of is, is it too late to join? And and our feeling is no, the pie keeps growing, the, the opportunities keep growing. So if uh, for those interested in building your business, I'm, we're happy to help you. Uh, John, I want to keep on the major, we're trying to hit, by the way, if you're a pan, listening to the panelists, we're hitting like every major uh, topic we can in our short amount of time. So we haven't talked elections, we have to talk elections, uh, volatility of elections. You're, you, you know, again, Index IQ, you tend to be thought leaders in this space. What are you talking to your advisors about how they position themselves, knowing that there will be continued election coverage and probably continued volatility as a result? Yeah, thanks, Doug. And there's certainly a lot of things going on. But if the election was the only thing happening this year, which it certainly isn't, um, you know, our team at New York Life Investments, which, which Index IQ is a part of, done a lot of research on this. And if it was only the elections coming this year, we would expect more volatility. So over the next, the 60 days uh, leading into an election over the last 30 years has seen a 40% increase in the VIX. And so we'd expect something similar here, especially given everything else going on in the world. And so volatility is coming. What exactly is going to happen is, you know, something we're not necessarily in the business of. Our team is, has gone through and, and looked at all the possible scenarios. I think the biggest headline risk that most investors here are probably aware of and some thinking about would be a democratic sweep and the, the tax headline risk that may come with that. I think that's real, but what we try to, to focus on for, for all investors is really what's the long-term policy impacts of any change or, 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 or not change as a result of the elections. That's gonna take time to really show what, what the real results are. Obviously, the market will be discounting the expectations for what those policy changes are, what is going to be enacted as a result of those uh, election results. But that, that time really goes back to that staying invested in the asset allocation, right? And that, that's really important to stay invested throughout this election cycle because we're going to kind of see the volatility. But things you can do within asset allocation while keeping some upside are, is really important. We talked about alternatives earlier, but within the core... Um, equity and fixed income buckets, there's ways to increase and, and maintain some low volatility exposures, right? So high yield is one of them. You can, you can choose ETFs that, that eliminate the highest, the lowest credit quality names within a high yield bucket, similarly in other, other parts of the space. So there's, there's a lot of options that ETFs provide that allow you to stay, stay invested uh, participate in the uncertainty that's going to, that's going to come, but, but, you know, make your portfolio more aware of potential downside to come. Ed, thanks for that. And, and by the way, if it's not crystal clear, you know, no one's trying to do a product pitch, but the ideas and the way of investing that each of the panelists are talking about, they have ETFs that cover this space. So, you know, the, the idea of being able to stay invested with protection, you can go to the index IQ website, the idea of investing in China, right? You can go to the DWS website. So uh, Fidelity's website, BNY Mellon's website, all of these are available in an ETF. And I, and I love the phrase of there's an ETF for that. And we tend to hear that a lot. Um, now, Greg, you and I have known each other a long time. Uh, I won't count numbers of years, but we've both been in this market for a while. Certainly by now you have a list, I'll say of, uh, you know, here are the things that you don't want to do as a mistake. I'll call them trading errors or, or misconceptions on trading or, uh, you know, what are, what are some of the top tips, if you will, of the, in the Greg Friedman bucket of, uh, you know, best practices for ETFs? 
No, absolutely. And yeah, I just want to get back, before I answer that question, I want to get back to Jason's question about the conversion. Yes, there's nothing prohibiting conversions. It's just a lot of work. I think, you know, the best thing to do is, is consult with outside counsel, consult with your board, because yes, it's possible. I think a lot of people are talking about it. it's an exciting development around the industry, but, you know, I think there's some careful considerations and processes that, you know, should be taken into consideration. So to the Greg Freeman bucket of what not to do, I probably have done it all myself. So it's, so it's a really an endless bucket. Um, but I think it's, it plays right into what Jason was talking about, you know, a few moments ago is, you know, you don't want to really, you know, put a market on open trade or market on closed trade. You know, that's when the opening auctions and closing auctions, that's when there's some volatility. Um, you know, that's when you're not gonna get the best execution. You know, we're big with limit orders. We're big with, you know, being careful and smart. and you know, the, the wonderful thing about the industry, um, even though it's grown as much as it has since you and I started working together, Doug, um, it's still a, a very focused industry on doing what's right for the client. So every sponsor has a, on the website has trading secrets, trading um, tips. And I think everyone, you know, universally is, you know, you don't want to do a market open or market close order, do a limit order and, you know, just be smart how you do it because these are volatile products. We are in volatile times. We do have open auction and closing auctions for as, as well run as New York has got, for example, their, their trading processes, there's still some, some, some chance. So um, just be smart in how you trade, um, you know, firms like ours, others, you know, Jason's comments today, I think are extremely valuable and spot on for, for, for the investors in the end. Yeah, and I, you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of the ETF capital markets being there to support. I want to come back to that in a minute because I'm watching time. I want to make sure we hit every major topic. Uh, Luke, let, let's pick another one. Uh, so let's talk ESG. Mm -hmm. you know, again, headline dominating to some effect. Uh, we've seen ESG in equity. Now we're starting to see ESG in fixed income. I know my own parent company offers a series of fixed income ESG indexes and the ability to build your own. Uh, is this the, the new greenfield opportunity? Is this, you know, the, the place where, you know, ETFs are going to continue to grow or investors are going to, to grow their, their exposure? You know, what, what are you seeing from DWS angle? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you're exactly right. There, there's been huge growth. This year, we've had 19 billion flow into ESG ETFs, um, bringing us to 40 billion in total. So um, with market growth, it's, you know, it's well over 100% growth in um in uh, inflows over where we where we started the year, so we've seen um, a huge adoption of ESG. We ourselves have expanded our range. We now offer uh, large cap US. We offer EFA, emerging markets, or world. And we just recently launched our fixed income investment grade, high yield, and um, and emerging market debt. So we cover about seventy percent of a portfolio through those through those exposures and, and we've got we've got some more to come to you know continue filling out that that portfolio so we, we're taking a real stance in in esg is it a greenfield opportunity we see it as a, an opportunity to participate in the core of portfolios we're not offering um in these particular products a thematic approach this isn't saying hey this is a bet if you think green electricity uh, green energy is going to be a, uh, a dominant field in the future we're saying here is the S&P 500, here is the MSCI EFA. We're giving those benchmarks, low tracking to those original regular benchmarks, but with an ESG uh, screening inside, inside the fund. So there is, there's two things here. One, we're seeing 
that it is an opportunity for us as a as a as an issuer and it's a, an opportunity for the industry to offer these these products because there is a growing demand for it not just um uh, not just from in the us but with some of the major investors this year have been european institutions that have been very um aggressively moving into esg so we think there is still a big wave of us investors to adopt it but here's the, the absolute critical point that gets lost in the esg conversation every time it, it comes up and that is that esg environment social governance sounds like and is initially pitched as this is a values-based way of investing this is very much a capitalist way of approaching a portfolio this is very this is not in conflict with being a fiduciary because when you look at what these really mean i mean governance is very clear you're, you're looking at companies that are less prone to corruption that have better control frameworks when you look at social there's things in the social screens like product safety employee safety uh, records of, of accidents so things that if companies are good at those things and have good records arguably they're stronger better quality companies less prone to huge recalls of product for example and then when you look at environmental not only are these companies that are serving the environment better and social serving their communities better these are companies that are using resources more efficiently or actually um, being additive to preparing themselves for a world perhaps without uh, fossil fuels and so firms that are better prepared so what, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that ESG are ESG strong ESG companies are arguably better companies why are we not all using ESG all the time and that's that's the interesting thing in the past analysts only looked at financial metrics or for the most part looked at financial metrics to measure a company's uh, potential performance ESG are just non-financial metrics that we can now use to measure companies because the data is more abundant the data is more transparent and we have better ways of, of, of measuring it so these I believe in the future an active manager or a passive manager ESG are just going to be filters it, it, people will will not accept that the active analyst or the, the index hasn't considered that these companies have flaws. So, so ESG are going to be mainstream. So I think there's an opportunity now that this is a new green field that, that we, can, we can add product and um, serve clients by being, bringing to market these ESG. But I'd like to think in the future, this is just investing. And it's a little bit to, to Greg's point earlier about non-transparent active, it's a great innovation but really this is just another vehicle that does something slightly different. We shouldn't get too bogged down on, on the differences. So long story short, ESG is, is definitely uh, a, a real movement. It's not a fad. And this is a, this is a real uh, fiduciary based investment methodology. And so, so I don't want people to get, get sidetracked by the value versus being a fiduciary. ESG does both. And if you look at the performance through this volatility, that, that really plays out. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> John, I see you kind of nodding your head quite a bit, and I know you're involved in this space, uh, you know, extensively. Would you mind just adding a few more comments? No, I just really agree with Luke. I mean, I think the, the re-emphasizing his point that ESG is is a whole there there because there's a core opportunity for ESG, right? Where where it is a an arguably better way to look and evaluate a company as opposed to just looking at financials and growth ratios, right? Um, you, you got to look at it as a whole. And, and that is, I just want to further distinguish that from investing in, um, you know, low carbon 
emission companies or, or something along those lines. Those are valid thematic investments. There's nothing wrong with those, but that's it's separate from the, the ESG that, that Luke is talking about and has really been the, the real driver of growth in, in the ETF market this year. Thank you. So, so Jason, we have two minutes left on our panel here. Uh, you know, if you could, would you, would you mind closing us out on, on ETF trading, what it is ETF capital markets teams offer at issuers, you know, how, how do, how does that, that team and that role support the advisors that are out there watching? Yeah, I'll keep this brief sensitive to the time, but I always encourage advisors to reach out no matter how large or small the question is about the trading or liquidity profile of any ETF. This is what the capital markets desk is designed for. And it's somewhat a role bespoke to ETFs. And we cap markets people like to think of ourselves as a jack of all trades. And advisors sometimes wait until the point of trade to reach out and call, which is of course fine. We can provide input at that point on where to source liquidity, size and depth of order book, or even limit order guidance. But also use us early on in the due diligence when you're evaluating the ETF. Happy to provide historical infos around spreads, daily volumes, and really, we can provide examples of past executions to show the efficiency of the trade in a particular ticker. So we like to receive phone calls. We like to receive emails. Don't be shy. Leverage us as a resource to help make the best decisions for your clients. Yeah, it's great. And, and uh, as we close out, I'll, you know, I personally worked on an ETF capital markets desk for many years. It's a, it's a great position. All you do is, is help uh, advisors, help institutions get better prices all day. So it's, it's a really neat role. Um, well, I want to thank each of you gentlemen for taking the time here today and joining us. I want us to thank the Capital Links team doing a great job. Many of us have digital booths. I invite you to go and pop in and say hello, learn more. And for those who want to learn more about ETFs in general, come to the home of ETFs.com. That'll redirect you to the New York Stock Exchange webpage and me and my team, we can help you from there. So with that, we'll wrap up. Thank you all and, and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.